Definitely the most concentrated time I've spent out there. I think I'd only ever been there for, you know, to play Pappy and Harriet's hang for a day at a time. Um, we had a really wonderful experience and especially as like a, neither of us did much for the first stretch of the pandemic and basically until that point. Um, so it was pretty magical to get to not only go to the studio that I have heard so many amazing recordings come from, but, um, David Catching, who runs the space is just like a world treasure of a person and made our trip just really like emotional and wonderful. Uh, so it was nice to be, to be out there. We did get to trespass at Pioneer Town at like three in the morning at some point, so that was kind of fun. Have you seen Nope yet? I did, yeah. I, I, I was, of course, thinking of uh, Pioneer Town. Thank God the power stayed on. I mean, it would have been like an emotional experience regardless, right? I mean, just like sort of like being back with the band after so many years and, you know, being isolated for so long. Yeah, I mean, we were like hanging out, a lot of, you know, outdoor coffees. But definitely to get to work on recording. And the last record I had done before this, I did two things that were kind of like mostly me, where I, the Sat 13 record, I, I played, other than my uh, incredible friend and the drummer Zoe Brecher, and we had some strings, I think, we had some strings and woodwinds, but other than that, it was me playing everything. It's a lot of me. Uh, <laughs> it's too much me time. And then I, I did a remix remaster project where i was remixing from home the earliest speedier t stuff that was all solo as well so i was just like sick of hearing tracks and tracks of myself and it was really fun to get to get in a regular rehearsal practice again like arranging material with other people uh that's that's a nice thing to do you were still hearing tracks and tracks of your own voice though to be fair and of my own guitars and keyboards but also tracks and tracks of everybody else's guitars and keyboards and you know drums and bass. It sounds like it's been an opportunity for you to to focus on other things that like perhaps you didn't have time to when m- music and speedy RT specifically was front and center for you. Yeah, and even just like my relationship with Philly where I've I've lived since 2016 but until the pandemic I hadn't been home for more than two consecutive weeks uh, ever. So it it's not going to say it's been nice but um there's certain kinds of writing work and freelance work that I had done for years before touring all the time. And I feel like now I have a, a, just a different relationship to writing because I got to spend a little time at home. I'm not, I'm not a good uh, traveling writer. Can't do it. You have to sort of like sit down you have to carve out a specific time. Do you have to sit in a specific place? How do you actually make yourself productive? I realized as I said this, I kind of lied to you because I, I did just put out a book uh, earlier this month that I wrote pretty much entirely on tour. But the thing that I didn't do was edit at all. Uh, I feel like I can do a bunch of generative writing and, you know, I can come up with ideas while traveling, but I can't do the organization or editing process um, unless I'm like at home or in a workspace for that. Well, we're talking specifically poetry. Yeah, I think when I started saying that I can't work, write from the road, I meant like, uh, like criticism or like journalism. I can't do that while traveling at all. You know, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason of basically writing being editing. And I think that that's a thousand times more the case with poetry. Yeah. Yeah, the the bulk. I mean, I, I certainly was writing regularly for f- four years to put the book to write the poems, but the editing was a lot more intensive and something I really was like, 
Like if I look over in the corner of this room, there's a big cardboard box in the corner and it's just like every time I printed out all of these poems to edit them over the course of a year. (laughs) You're a paper editor. Yeah, I have a hard time conceiving things solely on the screen. I was going to say most people have this with books and I also have this with books, but I I have a thing where I buy a lot of notebooks that I never use. (laughs) Oh, that you buy them and don't write in them? Or I'll write like a page or two and just be like, why am I doing this? This is completely illegible. It's taking me 10 times as long, but I like the, like, I like the idea of paper, but it, it's just, I like the convenience of writing on a screen. I just feel like, um, the like places you get are different when you are doing it with pen and paper. If I'm editing like an article I wrote, I, I'm not so precious, but that can all be in the computer. But if I'm editing my lyrics or poetry, I, I just like, can't visualize what it would be like to completely flip something upside down in terms of its arrangement unless I do a circle around it and you know and even like songwriting if I can start with pen and paper and not be in the computer at all even just for like an hour you just come up with a lot of ideas that your your typing fingers like don't have in them or they just have different vocabularies for me. Is that insane? <laughs> I'm 100% with you that if I could read my own handwriting, and if I hadn't, yeah. I'd never had great handwriting. Well, mine is illegible, I should say. <laughs> it's not good. It's legible in that that you specifically can read it. If I do it quickly enough after having, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't write poetry. I ne- I've never really written poetry. Yeah, editing prose. And, and writing prose, certainly longhand, is a nightmare. No, God. Ugh, get tired. I was listening to an interview that you, I think it was like Berkeley School of Music, and, and you were talking about the songwriting process and the old cliche question of, of words and music, but words, lyrics specifically for songs coming, coming toward the end or, or, you know, coming after the music is interesting to me coming from somebody who also writes poetry. And that I would think that yeah. you would just like have a lot of this around. It's, I think it's hard. They're not like malleable into one another. I actually. I hope the uh, I hope someone who's a major fan of Billy Corgan's poetry doesn't doesn't listen to this episode and contacts me. He has one book out. It's a poetry book from two thousand four, and some of it I was reading and I was like, you know, this is not so bad. Some of it I'm reading, I'm like, these are just like some lyric ideas. Like it doesn't read, it doesn't read well on a page because they're not the same form. And I I try really hard actually to make my lyrics read well on a page. Like, I, I would love the idea of someone going in the liner notes and they read the lyrics that are printed and have not heard the music and think that it can stand on its own, um, which is part of why I need to, like, print out my lyrics and, and I actually format them as prose because um, I feel like if they read decently that way, then I know I'm not doing anything lazy. What's my point? Oh, I, I can't, like, write a poem and then try to turn that into lyrics because the whole point in writing poetry for me is it's, I feel like it's a more visual medium and it's not constrained to fit the meter or the, you know, weird (laughs) synth parts that I programmed in. It can, it's just its own thing. Uh, And trying to chop it around to, to fit into a song is like, it'd be like writing somebody's musical or something. <laughs> I don't know. Part of it is maybe definitional in that 
for you, it's a lyric specifically when it's been written for a meter that exists or for a piece of music that you've already created. Yeah. And I, I just, I think to try to write music for my poems, it, I would have to be going in like a Scott Walker direction. I don't think I would know how to turn them into like a, like a poppy rock song. Get some violins and an orchestra and just really yeah lean into that. <laughs> I mean, I mean by by Scott Walker, I mean uh, weird, weird Scott Walker. I think you know. Yeah, not the I, Wisconsin. Um, I mean, like meat punches. Not the governor. No, no, no. I don't didn't yeah. even didn't but, even but cross even, like, my weird mind. Weird Scott Walker was like was I don't know. He was still like orchestral, right? I mean, yeah, like, yeah. even his like avant garde stuff was really it was it's very like grand. It's it's yes. all really big in a way that a lot of avant garde music isn't necessarily. Yeah, and by by invoking him I really meant more that the the songs seem to be removed from like any sense of meter. Uh it's like through composed um more in a way that that poetry is cuz he I think he wrote did he write poetry as well? His lyrics are very Oh, probably. poetry adjacent. I I'd enjoy his book more than I think I enjoyed Billy Corgan's. <laughs> I'd be curious to go back and read Jules and see how her poetry is. What? Who's Jules? Oh, who's Jules? Oh, Jewel! I thought you were saying like Jules, like Jules Holland. I was like, Jules Holland has a. Jules Holland may have written a book of poetry. I would read his poetry, and yeah, yeah. Jewel famously had a poetry book yeah. come out, like right around, like at the height of her powers. I have not read Jewel's poetry book. I don't know if it's. If, I'm sure it is good. When did you actually start writing poetry? I was reminded of this recently because I'd kind of forgotten. I won some poetry contest when I was like seven, and the prize was that you got to read your poem in a commercial for low, like Lowe's Cinemas had some kind of nonprofit project that I can't even remember, and, and I'm sure I have a VHS tape of this somewhere. But I won the contest. They filmed me reading my poem, and it was shown before movies at Lowe's in like 1996 or something. Uh, and I snuck, my mom and I begged them to let us into some movie because we knew that it would be playing and, and watched it. Uh, yeah. So I read, I did write a poem when I was like eight or something. <laughs> Do you feel like that that was kind of the apex for you? That it's all it, been downhill I mean, since I haven't then? been in a movie, you know, pre-trailer trailer since then. So probably it's all been downhill. I wrote and read some poetry in high school, but I feel like I did not get an experience of poetry that made me interested in it from high school, which I think is a fairly common experience. We only get shown certain kinds of things that are going to be on, help you with your SATs or whatever. And then in college, I... Went for math. I went. I was a double major in math and music. I did not intend to do any form of writing, but I learned that you could get free CDs and concert tickets if you wrote for the student newspaper. So, trying to get get in to see, you know, like Ted Leo for free, I wound up becoming the <laughs> an editor of the newspaper. Uh, realizing that I really liked writing, starting to you know, write for tiny mixtapes and stuff like that. And at some point I was like, I think I'm going to drop out of school and try to do writing instead because I was at, this is also 2007, so it's slightly less outlandish. There were still magazines uh, and they paid a dollar a word. 
but I wanted to finish out the year for some reason. Um, so I took a really short-term class with this poet named Bill Corbett, who was uh, part of the writing department. And not he, the mystery science theater guy. Not the mystery science theater guy who one time like got mad at me for tweeting at him, thinking it was my 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 old professor. Bill Corbett was a pretty celebrated poet, but he also was an arts critic for the Boston uh, Phoenix. So I took his class because I was interested in that kind of stuff. And he's like, you should try poetry. Take my poetry class. Um, there were like three kids in the class, but I became very hooked. So so I guess I was 20 years old. Um, and it was really like Bill Corbett's fault. So th- thank you, Bill. <laughs> he passed away a few years ago. Uh, but he was, he was a, definitely a huge influence on going down this dark and twisty road. Did that keep you in school? Did you end up graduating or did you actually? I did drop out. Um, it, it wouldn't have made sense to, like, this was MIT. There were, like, not kids who wanted to do poet. You know, if they were doing poetry, it's because they were stressed out from their, like, quantum physics and neuroscience classes. Uh, God bless. I, <laughs> I did drop out. I, I wound up finishing um, elsewhere, and I, I did go to, I got an MFA in poetry um, because, by the time I was eligible to do something like that, it was 2011. Every magazine was folding. I could not get an editorial job. So I was like, let's see. Let me see if I can get funding to go to, to a master's program. And I could. <laughs> I love this story. I hear from a lot of people where they're like, oh, yeah, that was not a viable path. So I chose a far less viable path. At the I found time, something even more ridiculous. You know. I got probably the same salary I would have got from a magazine to to go to grad school, so okay, <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like poetry specifically is is a funny one and famously impossible to yeah. make a living doing. Right, you I, are, I mean, you... <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> but I mean, it must be interesting though, like being on. I don't want to say the business side, but like being having been on the publishing side, because that's really one of the big things that kind of filled the vacuum for you early into all of this. But you know what's funny? I started doing that, doing Wax 9, because I was so frustrated of seeing po- online poetry journals that barely do anything, and they charge you like a $25 submission fee, and they don't pay the poets. I just got sick of hearing about those. <laughs> uh, so I almost like rage started the poetry journal, because <laughs> I was just like, at least I could like figure out how to pay people like a you know publication fee and not charge them to read their poems. I guess it's possible to do that as long as you're okay not making any money as a publisher. No, and I and I don't make any money as a publisher. And some people donate with their submissions, and some people donate because they enjoy reading it, and it covers some of the you know honorariums and not all of them, and that's fine. Uh, but yeah, it's funny, like, I think being so active in music communities where everyone's, at least at this point, comparing notes about who pays what and what percentages are normal and what percentages mean you're being screwed over, the publishing world's royalties are like, if a, if a music, if a record label was, was paying out something like that, it would be like... They'd be, they would be canceled. 
Uh, so I think there's a sense in which publishers and labels can kind of get away with it to a certain extent because because like because you, it's they, they can yeah, but also they like they can point to people who like who can make a living doing this. Like there are uh, granted, it's a very small and probably increasingly small group of people. I don't know how many current poet. I mean, you you can probably name a few, certainly more than I can, but there aren't a ton of nobody's really cleaning up writing poetry right now. No. You, you look out with a, some university visits and, you know, yeah. What's your sense? Um, I mean, other than having a really great teacher, but what's your sense of what it was that really hooked you into poetry in that class? I think, yeah, having a great teacher was part of it. it he, it was like a very, I think I'd only been introduced to poetry that was structured a specific way or part of a certain the canon of poetry and Bill was like, check out this chat book that someone local just put out this week. Check out, uh, he, he was like very into Gregory Corso and James Schuyler. And there's some stuff I hadn't checked out before that was still like canonical, but not public school, public high school canon. Some like beat kind of. Or beat. Yeah. Like post beat. And he really, it wasn't like, you know, write a, <laughs> it wasn't like, which I can't even, <laughs> I just went really into my memory palace. I, I finished high school in 2006, so there was definitely, like, write some, like, Iraq war, <laughs> like, poetry as an assignment, but use this specific structure. This was just, like, write, what, what are you feeling that you need to write through? What is the structure that's going to suit you writing through that? Um, try that. Uh there's no, and even inter, interpretation of poetry, I think, gave me so many hangups about it. And that was really not the focus of his class, other than the stuff that was obviously like including biographical details of uh, New York school poets and things like that. It's an interesting framing, this idea of what are you feeling that you need to write through, with, you know, which yeah. is writing or, or art as catharsis generally. Is that, did it start as a way to work through things? Yeah, which is not to say I didn't have an outlet for that, because I started writing songs pretty young and always did regularly. Um, And I would say that was even more the outlet for, you know, things like that. As like a teenage songwriter, you're for sure just working through your feelings in in songs, um, even if there is elements of craft uh, invoked. I think um, something that I really liked about working on poetry especially the first few years I was doing it uh when I was a kid I was really I really loved to make visual art and I kind of didn't have time or space for it as I got was in college and also I always had a bunch of like part-time jobs through college um I wasn't doing much visual art and I felt like poetry was a place where some of those tendencies could be explored for me um where especially I like to work do I like to paint uh, my painting is pretty abstract and maybe I know why I did a certain thing but it's not something that you have to look at and have an interpretation for like why why this color why this like palette knife um and I felt like poetry was bringing up some of those forgotten I don't know I hesitate to say skills because I'm not like a incredible painter but it was it was like some of that uh memory not muscle memory is poetry or is the poetry that you write is it an abstraction in the same way your painting is obviously it's less abstract because there are words and they're english ones that i speak 
But I'm definitely like, like when I tell people what my book is about, and I say what it's about, which is that I wrote it on tour and that um, I was grieving several friends overdose and that I had started to understand more about harm reduction and overdose reversal and harm reduction's principles. And that also made me reconsider the music industry in which I've been working for a long time. Uh, These for, were people that you had met through music primarily musicians, but like, I mean, uh, I, you know, people use drugs in all corners of, yeah, no, of so, course. But, but, but you said specifically like, rethinking the music industry which led me to believe that there was something there something related to mute i think learning more about harm reduction made me consider how many things that are inherent to being like a club musician are harmful and i don't want to say perhaps they like encourage addiction um and they certainly encourage uh lack of health whether that's like mental or, or physical and part of that is that like wages haven't gone up for support bands since like you know over 20 years ago so so when i give people the spiel of what my book is about which is all the stuff i just said i then have to say but it's not that direct like you're going to read between the lines to get that have you stopped telling people or do you not tell people as immediately because of that because there's some concern that they're that they're worried that it's going to be too um i guess somber yeah, because it's not it's not completely somber uh this book. I don't I don't feel like you don't tell people what the synopsis is, the poetry book, that's a funny expression. It's like printed on the back of the book. It's not like it's a big secret what I wrote it about. But I think when I I bring this up to say that it, they're not abstractions, they're about these very specific things that if I were to write them in essay form I could do more clearly, but that's not what poetry is for, for me, or really the poetry I gravitate towards. So it is abstracted, despite being readable. <laughs> Does poetry afford you the, the ability to focus on a single theme for an extended period in a way that maybe writing a record wouldn't? Or do you, do you process things similarly through music? I think the processing is similar, but the processes are, are just very different um and definitely most of my poems are they're not very long um I'd, I'd say most of the poems in this book fit onto one page um but i tend to overwrite like i'll write four or five times that much uh so the editing process was pretty crucial this time around because i was able to sort of make sense of what was most important in what i had said for five pages that you know can comp compact it down to um to one so i think that in the same way that you're gonna get more out of <laughs> an hour of therapy than you will 20 minutes i think i i'm able to understand my work better by kind of overwriting to start and then uh really treating the editing process as its own separate um creative component Whereas in songwriting, you're not going to, if you're overwriting, you, you maybe you wrote an extra verse or two and you're going to pick the one you like the best or, you know, swapping in and out one word again and again and again until it's the day to record vocals. But there's not really an opportunity to write five pages of lyrics and edit them down. You know, you mentioned Corso. Um, and when you think of like the beat poets specifically, there's such a romanticization of spontaneity 
mm. there. Like, certainly this is not specific to poetry. You know, painting is like this too, that, you know, that of really sort of like being in the moment and, 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 and really channeling it and really like putting down the thing that you're feeling in the moment on paper. Um, but it, it sounds like your process, I guess by the nature of the process that it has to be a little more methodical for you, at least in the editing. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm having my cake and I also am eating it. I, I like to try the spontaneous, you know, free flowing thought for five pages and see where I get. And I do love surprising myself. And that's, I think the, the part about drafting I'm always most excited about. And then using the editing process to like maximize the effect of that. So keeping in the spontaneous moments, um, if they heighten what I, what I need to do in the poem, but I, I think it's similar. It's similar for me in music, not so much in the, the words themselves, but my demoing process is like, Anybody I work with on production after getting the the pre-produced stuff is like, what what's wrong with you? Like, why are there 120 tracks? All of these synth parts are like kind of similar, but deviate just enough. Um, so I'm definitely throwing everything out there with the recording too. And the things that I wind up most excited by are the things I came to sort of by accident or even like a note that is a mistake. Um, so I think it, it's in both kinds of work i'm i'm always trying to straddle that happy accident uh you know dedicated cleanup line how much of that thousand track demo is a product of being a music major well i didn't finish my music degree okay but you know i'm sure you've got some fundamentals yeah i did i sang in a children's choir growing up that toured uh we had a choir master that i feel like should have a tv show about him in that he just he had won a, a grammy for composing and he treated it he treated every 12 year old as if they were a 45 year old who okay this um, is like had, a mr holland's opus i don't remember that movie at all but i that don't seems know to what happens mr holland okay. kind of mean and fascinating i was yeah. played by richard dreyfus so he would okay. have to be yes so maybe it is like that without having seen this since whenever it came out so the music was pretty weird or at least the repertoire was pretty weird and there was a lot of weird time signatures that are just there for two measures and you're holding a note that's clashing with the person that you're standing next to and you're holding it for quite a while. So I think like it makes sense that I got into math rock <laughs> because I was doing like vocal math rock. So yeah, I think the, I think the tendency to layer comes from having that kind of like contemporary classical background. Um, as a teen having i guess been a was it a double major or a major and minor between music and math when i went to school i i stayed at a double major but i didn't get degrees in math or music <laughs> i guess literally if you're trying to kind of marry math and music then math rock is probably a pretty good way to do it yeah and a lot of classical music has those you know odd time signature odd mode components that I like 20th guitar century music stuff, too. certainly. Yeah, for sure. What was the plan, or, or was there a plan, given these two, like, at least seemingly dissonant things that you were studying? There were a surprising amount of double majors in music. At, this was it. I, I can't remember if I said it was MIT. Um, so... Uh, yeah, we get it. You, got, you went to MIT. Yeah, but I dropped out, Jeez. and I failed chemistry, like, five times. So, in four semesters, I felt... No. Um, a lot of kids were were double majors in music because um, I feel like a lot about music performance is kind of left, left brain. 
And I don't know, it's like really stressful to be (laughs) going to school for physics in a way that I didn't experience when I went back to school and was doing more humanities focus. Um, So it makes sense to need the outlet of music um, at that stage in in one's life as as, as we do, I feel like, throughout life. There was a sense in which you were really focused on math, like math seemed like the kind of the, the path forward for you. In terms of like what I thought I would do for work, yeah. But I w- it was not a good, you know, I didn't, I didn't cut it. So I assume that you must have had some proficiency for math in order to have gone to MIT for it. I was really good. And I, I had won some scholarships, um, but it just was really, I, the stress of doing it in college was um, not good for me. And I, I wasn't doing very well. <laughs> like in life for for the time I was there. I think for most of us, math is a thing that you study in school and plays very little, I guess, day-to-day for us for the most part. Is there anything that you learn there that you've kind of taken with you? Um, in terms of like studying math, not... I think the thing that, honestly, learning that I could drop out of something was a huge thing for me because it was like I had gone to school for math because I was good at math. Did I really enjoy it? Uh, it was making me pretty miserable. So I, I, like you mentioned earlier, you bring books in your house and you don't read them. I have to, if I start a book, it doesn't matter how quickly I hate it and how continuously I hate it. If it enters my house, I'm going to read it front to back you've, you've got your like reading lists on social media and it's yeah so I, i'm not saying i like all those books but they enter in my house so i finish them um i have a really hard time quitting something breaking something off um so the lesson that i that i you know could <laughs> could give up on something was i think a pretty crucial one uh if it's not making me you know sad or unhealthy sunk cost fallacy yeah for, let, let's all let go of that one <laughs> I was thinking about it this morning. I, I, I write professionally and, and, and have been for a long time. And I this is almost embarrassing to admit, but I I'd never at any point in my life until really like literally a couple of weeks ago, I started writing a journal. And yeah. the reason why I didn't do it before is because I always felt like if I was going to write something, I was going to share it with people that it was almost a waste to not sort of send it out into the world and just yeah. to write something for myself. Yep. And now you know better. For sure. I mean, it's, I, I listen, I'm an incredibly stubborn person, just like, like as a rule. And, and this is something that, th- that I'm trying to get better at. And, and I think it's something like where the benefits of doing something like that aren't, aren't really direct, but you kind of learn that there's this space around them yeah. when you start to gain things from it. I had a, I just did a book tour. Um, my my first tour really since the pandemic was a, a book tour I just got home from, which is part of why scheduling with you is a little tricky. Yeah, I knew you like cartoonists, so Michael's been on the you show. Had Michael before. on the show. Okay, cool. Uh, one of my best friends, um, and we both read every night, and then did a Q and A together with a, a third moderator. Um, and I loved when questions came up about like how much of your work do you throw away, and Michael's like. I throw things out constantly. Like I'll work on something very hard and then destroy all copies. And I'm like, Oh, I don't throw anything out. If I started it, I will finish it. It might be that I started it seven years ago, but I will still hold on to it. Wait for the right time that I understand the problem of why I couldn't finish it and then finish it. 
I'm not going to say I'm completely away from the uh, sunk cost fallacy, um, but I do like to finish things. <laughs> Maybe you don't appreciate it because because it's you and, and you're in it, but, but me hearing you talk about the amount that you write around something only a, a small percentage actually makes it onto the paper it means it like you are in fact throwing a lot out. Yeah, I guess that's true. But the yeah, I guess I throw away components, but not the whole. Even in and of itself, that is something that I have a lot of difficulty with, and that I suspect a lot of other people have a lot of difficulty with. Mm. I like editing people. I, I edit people as part of my job, but I hate being edited. It 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 like keeps me up at night. I think I'm annoying to edit because I think I know better, which I probably don't. Sometimes I do. But but I yeah. I, I under I'm I'm similar. I, I am a good editor of others and of myself. Uh when other people are editing me, I'm like, well actually I don't think that helps at all and here's why. <laughs> Hire me for freelance writing editors out there listening. <laughs> I'll be annoying to work with. <laughs> me talking through things I've tried to get better at, but I used to just be like all right, just edit it and just like, just don't, just, just, I, I don't want to ever look at it again. Mm-hmm. Go take it off at, you know, like do rip everything out, you know, just completely change it if you want. I just don't want to be involved in that process. Yes, of rewriting. If it's in someone else's hands, fine. That's totally fine. Unless they're making things grammatically incorrect that were right in my draft, which drives me up the wall and happens all the time. But, uh, to be like working on edits when I like don't agree with the conceit of why we are doing the edit is not yeah yeah but <laughs> but I want to rip it, my but, head off my shoulders and I don't know if you, you like you do appreciate this about yourself but that you it sounds like you've gotten to a point maybe you were there all along in a certain sense but where you aren't super precious about your work because you're willing to you know cut so much of it out yeah but I'm not cutting out the good stuff. I think I think when you come back to something, I think this is part of why I like how I did this book, which is very, very different process than the last one. But I did all this writing and didn't edit and was editing in, in some cases four years later. You're not precious when it's been four years. You're just like, you're, it's the same as editing somebody's work that's not yours. You're just keeping an eye out for the things that are working the best. And there's, you know, me of four years ago isn't here to fight back, so I can just make heavy-handed edits <laughs> wherever I like. Four years is, it's a long time to to be working on one single thing. I mean, maybe, it's it sounds like you benefit from the fact that you have a lot of other things that you're doing, so you can, can go off and work in on and out other of projects. projects. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then, like, have the opportunity to return to something with, with fresh eyes. Yep. Yeah. It's helpful to, to build in that space, I think, for me, at least. It sounds like when you went into school that you, you were taking a fairly pragmatic approach as far as, obviously, you had all these creative interests, creative pursuits, but they, I guess, if you're, I don't want to say realistic, maybe realistic, as far as like what you wanted to do for a living. But it sounds like your parents were at least, were fairly supportive of your creative passions. Yes, but they did not think it could be my job, and I guess neither did I. Um, and when I went back to school to finish, I, I wound up with an undergrad degree in writing, but I had already been out of school, and work, I worked when I was out of school, um, and when I was back in school, I was working too, so it was really just, let me. As, I had a good time finishing it up, but it was like, I need to finish it up so I'm eligible for like 
a better version of the job I currently have. Prose writing, nonfiction writing is creative, but I, I, I wanted to like work for like content, you know, I'm not saying that I was trying to do something creative with writing. It can be creative, but, but obviously there are different constraints when it's professional and when you're a part of a big corporation. Right. One of the things I'm like always curious about, I, I ask musicians who have kids about how supportive to be of the, of their children having been through, like knowing how difficult things could be. And what, I guess what the, one of the things that's interesting as far as your background is, is both your parents, but your dad especially, like was in and around music, but really from the business side of things. So they probably had a really good idea of like just how difficult things are for artists. And I feel like I always need to clarify this. By the time the clock struck on 1980, I think both my parents were out of the music business. So this is like the, they, they had experience from the 1970s when there was all kinds of, you know, drug budget at record label. <laughs> like, it, was a, it was a different landscape. And even from that, they were like, you cannot make this your job. It just won't happen. I don't know specifically why they got out of the, out of the music business, but like clearly something about it wasn't working. So yeah, even, even in the, you know, Led Zeppelin flying around the world in their own plane days. They're like, this is not, this is, this is too difficult of a business for yeah. us to be in. I think they continued to have friends who were involved in music. I mean, they, I, I know they did. Um, and my mom still does. So, so maybe perhaps from that, they were like, you could be, you are the most talented person on this earth. You, you know, they could, they could be telling me you are the greatest, but it's, it, that, that does not matter. <laughs> was there a point when you realized that the music thing was, was really working and that it was, if not, if not the only thing that you focused on, that, that it could be your core thing? It was in the year 2013, when at the end of the year, I looked at how much money I had deposited in my bank account from touring on days off from teaching uh, versus the amount that I had made from teaching and the, the amounts were equivalent. So it was like, well, I could quit my teaching job and we had been offered some some pretty cool tours that I wouldn't have been able to do if I continued to work for a university, um, which were, the, the, I think the Breeders was one of them and uh, Steve Malkus and the Jakes were two of my all-time favorite bands had both put in a, uh, offered us tours. Um, I was like, so if I did this full time, then I guess I could probably make the same amount of money I did last year. Uh, and that, that, <laughs> it's like the least romantic, like, decision to plunge both feet in. At that time, I also was, uh, I guess I was 25 and I thought tours may not keep coming. I should just try to do this while I still have the energy. Um, <laughs> So it was also pretty pragmatic, I guess. I mean, like, I, I think that's right. I think, like, I listen, like, I look at, I never made that decision in my life. I consider myself lucky in that I've been able to write for a living. But part of it is, I guess, being overly pragmatic. And part of it is living in a place like New mm -hmm. York and not feeling like I had any flexibility. But, like, I, I didn't make that decision. And, and that's the point when you have to make it. That's like the shit or get off the yeah. pot moment is your And I was running myself pretty ragged doing both of those. It would be like... I, for, I've told this, I feel like I tell this story exactly the same way every time. So apologies if you, I know you did some research, so you might've heard me say exactly this, but I taught Tuesdays and Thursdays. I took my own classes 
on Wednesdays. So it would be like I would wrap, wrap up teaching on Thursday. The band would, in some cases, like pick me up from work or pick the other person up. You know, somebody was at work getting picked up. We get in the van. We're going to drive like six hours and somehow play that night. We tour Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We play Monday in like Cleveland and drive overnight so I can make it to teach a 9.30 a.m. class. Um, it, I don't know how I like didn't make myself really ill. <laughs> There's energy that you have when you're that yeah. age that, that goes away pretty now. quickly. Don't, don't have it. <laughs> Do you teach at all anymore? Um, once in a while. I'm actually going... Maybe you can tell me if I'm doing something insane. <laughs> I'm I'm going to get, once in a while I get to guest, and I've taught I've taught some workshops and things like that. Um, but I haven't worked for like a you know I haven't had a university employer in a while. But I'm going to guest uh, at a recording class at NYU tomorrow. Classes at nine a.m. I live in Philly. I'm gonna go at like six thirty in the morning because I want to sleep in my own bed tonight, and I think I'm gonna take the train in and out both Monday and Tuesday. Is that cra- that's crazy, right? But I, l- I really want to be in my own bed. <laughs> For starters, I I mean, okay, like so you're talking the 6:30 a.m. train? Yeah. So you have to be up at like 5, I guess, probably. Yeah, I think I could get up. I think if I'm packed and ready to go, I can be up at 5:30. If I make my little iced coffee and put it in the fridge. That's just what a, a lot of people do. Yeah. That, that's a lot of people's like daily thing. Yeah. I'm sure that your hours. I usually am keeping late night hours, so so the five thirty wake up is slightly startling, but it's not like I haven't done it before. Here's what I'll say, and you know I've been trying to embrace this over the last couple of days because you know as you know I had COVID recently, mm-hmm. I can't really go to the gym. I decided I'm just going to start getting up really early again and walk around. And Sounds there's great. you miss a lot by waking up long after the sunrise. So there's just like an entirely different world. Yeah. There's an entirely different feeling that you just don't get to experience. I have never been a good early riser, um, which is not to say I, I stay up super late. I think I'm one of these like babies who needs <laughs> too much sleep. So I would recommend, so I'm like semi unsolicited yeah, advice. Yeah, please. I'm soliciting it. Retroactively solicited advice. <laughs> appreciate the early morning and appreciate the... The train ride. Yeah, the Amtrak really, is, The East Coast is incredibly it. beautiful. Yes. The, the thing that is crazy is to do it two days in a row when I could probably just like stay on a friend's couch. But the, the class ends at like one o'clock. I could just be home and in my own bed. Do you feel like you appreciate your bed more because you there have been so many years when you weren't home at all? Yeah, I made my bedroom comfy finally. First of all, something I learned in the pandemic... You're not supposed to have a mattress for 18 years. I did. <laughs> Bought a mattress. Did you have a box spring at least? Yeah. That might be a dude thing. But I was to- I was toting around a mattress that I'd had since I was 15. And I, I as I said, Did you 34. have an emotional attachment to the mattress? I just didn't know you're supposed to get a new one. I was like, it's not uncomfortable. But it probably was. It's got divots where it's not supposed to have divots. But I sleep on people's floors and, you know, horrible couches all the time. So my standards were low. And now my standards are very high because I bought a comfortable bed from a box. <laughs> I used to go into the office every day. Yeah. And then the pandemic happened and I started working from home all the time. And I was like, I don't know why I was doing this. Going to the office? Yeah, a good two to three hours a day that basic basically wasted. But... It also slowly dawned on me that 
the reason why I did it and the reason why I do a lot of things and the reason why I'm like such a creature of routine is because as somebody like I'm fairly introverted, I could just spend all of my time like, you know, like sitting alone in my apartment and and I have over the last two years and there's momentum. Momentum is what keeps us going like day in, day out. And you're saying there's momentum for when you go into work versus... It's the momentum of like just knowing that every single morning that I'm going to sort of like wake up and and leave, and then you know you're, you're talking about this idea of like you know make making your apartment cozy because you're going to be there for two years and you lose you know if you're not going on tour all the time you lose a little bit of that sort of like built in momentum and it becomes harder to get out. It has become harder. I, this book tour I did was like three weeks, and I feel like I was just like bone tired <laughs> until. <laughs> Like oh, like ten days later. <laughs> sure, I'd like doing book reading, going to sleep at a reasonable hour. Yeah, well, I don't know. About... Michael uh, is much cooler than me, and he does not know how to drive. Um, so I was doing a lot of driving. Anyway, yeah, you're right. I don't have the stamina for all this touring that I that I did in 2019. But we'll see. I got I got to go out again Thursday, so let's see how it goes. Where's Speedy Ortiz at as far as like doing a real tour again? I think we have to have a record out because, as you as you pointed out, it's been a while. Um, Four years, I think. Yeah, 20, 2018 is when the last one came out. Um, and I put out a solo record, twenty twenty, and uh, we did some remix thing last year. So things have happened that have caused us to play, but um, yeah, we're 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 a ways from an album cycle. It'll be interesting to ramp up to that again. Yeah, we're. I think we're we're do- baby steps has been good. We've done a few where we do like four shows and then go home. Um, and this will be like three or so weeks, uh, maybe less than that. Maybe it's just like two weeks that we're about to leave on. So next year, it could be three three whole weeks. Do you miss it at all? Touring? Yeah. I mean, I just got to do the book tour, which was, was all the fun parts of tour and none of the loading in and out. Um, I don't miss the the stuff I did in like 2014, which is... I'm gone for three months straight, and I'm not home at all. And the sleeping on floors and all that. I still do that, but but if you're only doing it for a few weeks at a time, it's not so brain-changing. Uh, I think even uh, even on the last Speedy record, we had kind of said, let's only do three weeks on at a time, and even if it's just that we come home for a week, we can come home for a week and have our personal lives and our families and, you know... Uh, yeah, like feel like we live in a place. Um, so I'd probably, if I ramped up to a ton of touring, it would still sort of be in that format where I can like come home and hang with my dog and my partner and work on something other than music for, for a week. If you're in a band and you're not necessarily putting out records and touring all the time, partially, I assume because you've got other things going on, then you have to assume that like everybody else in the band is also going to have to have a lot of other things going on in the interim. Yeah, totally. Um, I don't know. It's nice to have other things. Sure. It's nice <laughs> to have things outside of your job to do, even if you have a fairly fun job. Yeah, I love, listen, I love to live out of a suitcase, but uh, I realized it was nice to like have relationships with people in my city like and community. Have your dog recognize you? Yes. Yes. 